the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, marking the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, historian Professor Linda Roper talks about her book, Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet. The episode was recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 30th of September, 2017. Thank you so much, Tara. It's a real honour and an absolute pleasure to be able to participate in an event like this, organised by a city library. It's just the most fantastic scale of thing, the fact that it's free and that it's supported by public funds, I think is just marvellous. So, yes. So I really welcome also the chance to talk with you about what's been happening in this year of celebrating the 500 years since Luther put up his 95 theses. And for me, it's been a very strange experience. I never set out to write a biography that would appear for the anniversary. I thought it would take me about five years to write. How wrong I was. (laughs) And in the whole time I was writing it, and it took me about 12 years, I didn't get in touch with the Lutheran Church, and I didn't go to the planning events for the anniversary. And so when 2017 suddenly hit, I was totally unprepared for what was going to happen, and for what was going to happen to me. So I want to talk partly personally and partly about what the public experience has been like, because I'm really interested to hear your reactions, because I think the political moment in which all this is happening is a very interesting one. So I wanted if I can, to begin with a personal experience I had, which was probably the most, one of the most moving and extraordinary things that has ever happened to me. And that was, I was asked to speak from Luther's pulpit in Wittenberg. <laughs> and at first I thought, no, I can't possibly do that. And then I thought, well, you're not going to be asked to do that again. So I thought I would try. There it is. As you can see, no pressure then. And it was a quite extraordinary experience and also something that hit me in ways that I had not expected. It was a very emotional experience. And partly, it's, it's hard to explain... But from that height, and it actually feels higher than that, you actually feel not distant from people, but very, very close to them. I felt closer to people, actually, than I do here to you. And I don't quite know why that was. I think it's because they are kind of nearer uh, to you. And instead of feeling like an authority figure, you feel very much part of that group and you can see every individual person and you feel you're talking to them. So that was very strange. 
I'm a not a Lutheran. Um, I'm a woman. And of course, there's all kinds of ironies in a woman speaking from Luther's pulpit. And it took me a long way, actually, to climb the stairs. And also, that was something I hadn't been expecting, how long it would take to climb up the stairs. You can't see them there. They're round the back, and you climb the way up, all the way up. That makes it look lower than it is in real life. Very few of us get the chance to come that close to our subjects. But the thing that I found deeply disturbing was also speaking from a pulpit in a church with this on the outside. I don't know whether any of you have seen this. Has anybody seen it? Yes. This is a Jewish sow, um, and it's on the outside of the church where Luther regularly preached. And what it shows is the sow there. It shows these are Jews, which are recognizable by their hats, who are sucking from the teats of the pig. And here we have a rabbi who is looking in the backside of the pig. It's a really disgusting statue which was put up on the church sometime in the early 14th century. So Luther himself had nothing to do with it. But it was a statue that he praised. He praised its message and he wrote a whole treatise in its honor. So speaking from that pulpit was an experience that for me was fraught with many different kinds of feelings. So what has it been like more generally? Well, I find myself addressing very different sorts of audiences. In Britain, I find that many audiences are polite, but they're not that interested. I spent years trying to get the BBC to make a film of Luther, but I completely failed, and I even found it very difficult to do anything for radio. The quincentenary has, of course, coincided with Brexit, and Anglicans, I think, don't really see Luther as part of their history, even though we know that the circle around Anne Boleyn was influenced by Luther, and you could hardly have had Henry thinking about divorce and remarriage if it had not been for what Luther was saying. And we know that the Strasbourg reformer, Martin Bootser, who was a Lutheran, was hugely influenced on the, uh, influential on the formation of the Anglican Church. He came from Strasbourg and he moved into Cambridge and he found Cambridge extremely cold and damp and he was so miserable that he had his special German stove imported to Cambridge from Strasbourg. I don't know whether you know a German stove, but it's kind of like the most effective kind of central heating and why Cambridge doesn't have them, I don't know. In Ireland, too, I saw that Luther is making the news in the Irish Times. And some of you may know this mural in Belfast. And I gather, is it right that in the July marches, banners of Luther were carried this year? Is that right? Am I right in thinking that? 
Yeah. So, all kinds of interest in heritage of various kinds. Um, by contrast, in Germany, the Luther Year is a national event. It's on the cover of the Spiegel, uh, Die Zeit last year. Uh, it's even national news. That one in the built is just amazing. So I think it's interesting that all of this is happening at a time where, from the German perspective, Brexit means that Germany will be taking even more of a leadership role within Europe, both politically and intellectually. And where, of course, since last weekend's election, uh, with the rise of the alternative for Germany, the first time that a right-wing party has been represented in the Bundestag since the war, all these issues are suddenly very salient. So I want to talk today about three things. First, what the problems and challenges are for anybody who sets out, like I did, in a very foolhardy fashion to write a biography of Luther. Then a bit about what my experience of writing it was like and finally, what's happening now with the commemoration of Luther. So I would say that the greatest challenge for any biographer of Luther is finding something new to say. The outlines of Luther's life were set in stone pretty much very soon after he died, and virtually every biographer tells the same story. So it's a pretty simple story. It starts with the 95 Theses, then it proceeds through Luther's meeting with Cardinal Cajetan at Augsburg and his refusal to recant. There it is in colour. It moves on to the Leipzig debate until our hero arrives at Worms and defends his work at the Imperial Diet in front of the Emperor Charles V and the assembled states of the empire. And that is really the climax of the story, a tale of remarkable courage and defiance. Luther is then spirited away to the Wartburg and kept in safety, but then he returns again to Wittenberg in contradiction of his ruler's orders to restore order in Wittenberg, which meanwhile has begun introducing the Reformation without Luther even being there and doing all kinds of things that Luther then says he doesn't approve of. In 1525, the Peasants' War breaks out and Luther's antagonist, Thomas Münzer, leads them in revolution. Luther sides with the princes, order is restored, and the rebellion is bloodily suppressed with thousands of peasants killed. So that's the first part of the story, if you like, up to 1525, and what a dramatic story it is. Then it gets... A, to be a different kind of a story. Luther's church develops at Wittenberg, there are attempts to unite with the Swiss in Marburg, and then at the Imperial Diet of 1530, the Lutherans present their confession of faith to the emperor, and Lutheranism becomes a separate church. Not that much happens after that as Luther becomes increasingly grumpy, ages, and dies in 1546. And that's the structure that every biographer has to come to terms with. And the problem that it poses for a writer first up is structural. What do you do 
when you've got a story that follows a really dramatic arc up to 1525, and then from then on, not a lot is happening. It's a story that's actually rather depressing because it's a story of decline and division after that wonderful um, opening period. So what do you do as an author? What makes it even worse is I'd say about 10% of the source material covers that period up to 1525. And then from the next 20 years, you've got Luther's works. Now, you've got 80-plus huge volumes of writings that he produced. You've got 18 volumes of his letters. And you've got six volumes of his dinner conversation. You've got a massive amount of source material, and that's just what Luther wrote. So you feel like an ant faced with this massive stuff, most of which you have to read but you know you can't go on about at length because it's just too depressing and repetitive a story. And yet this is um, a, a narrative which modern biographers did not invent. And when I showed you uh, these pictures, uh, here's one that depicts the burning of the bull outside the Wittenberg Gate. They come from 1557. They're one of the very first accounts of Luther's life. And you can see what memorable images they are. They are done in black and white, and there are many copies of them are hand-coloured, and I showed you a few of those as we went through. Um, here's another version of the diet. Um, that is the end of the story, um, Luther's funeral service in Wittenberg. And you can see that those visual cartoons really set what the key events are. And they're wonderful, even though some of them have to do double duty. So something like that tends to get used for pretty much any conference that was held, any colloquy. Um, but even so, it's, that is the series of narrative events that very soon become part of what the pious Lutheran has to know about their hero Luther. And it becomes something that gets picked up. So in the 17th century, here we've got a life of Luther in cartoons. And you can see all the key events and how they're depicted there. Here we have another earlier version of the same thing. It's very interesting because this is a format that would be used for news woodcuts as well. This is my absolute favourite. This is an 18th century one from Augsburg and it's about um, what you do is you can see that can you see the top ones missing what shape is it it's a cross and you can fold up all those tiny circles so that they fold in one on top of another and then you can store it in a box a little wooden box that's about that big what does that remind you of Probably not a chalice, but a host container. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, or it's like a relic container. And you can take it around with you, take it out, and reflect on Luther's life. And I think it's a very, very interesting devotional practice that that um, uh, gives you an insight into from the 18th century. And it shows you 
how much this biography and the key events in it have been fixed. But there are a couple of interesting things that it leaves out. First, and most embarrassingly, there is not, in the 16th century, a picture of Luther posting the 95 Theses. We don't even have a printing of the 95 Theses, which you could imagine being hammered up or pasted up, as is more likely, uh, as the 95 Theses. Of the three that survive, one of them, which looks like this, can you see how many it's got down the bottom? 87. How did that happen? If you look here, you can see that the printer got his numbering wrong and started to repeat. <laughs> and that's how we ended up with 87. Another that we have doesn't number them from 1 to 95, but puts them in batches of 20. So looking at it, you would not have seen that there were 95. And what about the third surviving copy? Well, that does number them from 1 to 95, but it does so in Roman numerals, which, of course, are much harder to, for me, and, and I think for people at the time, to grasp immediately. And not only that, it's quarto size. It's about this big. It's not something that you could have posted up on a door as you could have posted up this one, which is about so high. So, when the Catholic historian Erwin Iselo said, well, there's no proof that the 95 theses were, in fact, posted up, and questioned the proof for that, he was picking at a known scab, if you like. Right through the 16th century, we now know there is no depiction of Luther doing this, and that was even a problem for the very first celebration of the 100 years since Luther posted up the theses in 1617. So what did they do? They did this wonderful broadsheet on the dream of Frederick the Wise. And what that shows, can you see the um, Luther over on the left-hand side there with the absolutely enormous quill? There he is writing them up on the door itself. That is not a depiction of the posting of the 95 Theses because it's not a printed sheet that he's putting up. It's the depiction of a dream that Frederick the Wise supposedly had. It's not a depiction of a real event, but it's the closest thing that there was in 1617 to a depiction of Luther posting the 95 Theses. Second, the narrative that we have in those pictures doesn't show Luther's marriage in 1525 to Catalina von Bora. And what's really interesting is that very few of the contemporary histories of Luther mention it. Many of the key ones just pass over it and don't say, and in 1525, Luther married Catalina von Bora. I have found it in this depiction. There it is. 
and there are the nuns being led astray. This is a depiction of Luther as inspired by the devil. You can see the devil blowing in with the bellows into Luther's ear. This is a Catholic account that is a send-up of those Protestant ones I showed you earlier, and of course, it mentions the wedding. So that reminds us how difficult an event this was at the time. For many Catholics, it was an outrage. It was a double sacrilege because it was a monk and a nun, both of whom broke their vows. And Luther himself skips over it. He doesn't mention it in his own autobiographical reflections at the beginning of the German and Latin editions of his works. And in the funeral sermons, remember the funeral, the funeral I, I showed you, that 1557 depiction, the funeral sermons don't mention the wedding either, even though Katharina von Bora was present. And even though those double portraits of Luther and Katharina von Bora had been produced right through the 1520s and 30s, uh, from 1525 to 1530. And I think it suggests how awkward the Reformation still found Luther's marriage and his very positive attitude towards sexuality. So even though so many of Luther's generation had gone through exactly that same experience as Luther, think of all those monks and priests who had a complete change of life, who had never thought that they'd be living with a woman, and yet, often in their late middle age, they turned around and got married. And the third thing that I think is quite interesting is that the standard narrative doesn't give a clear moment at which the Reformation happened, at which Luther saw the light, as it were. Luther himself describes how he meditated on Romans and then had a sudden understanding of the grace of God. And this is the meaning, as he puts it. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It's a wonderful, very memorable and moving description. But when does Luther date it too? When would you expect he would have had that experience? Before he put up the 95 Theses? Yes, of course. But he dates it to 1519, two years later. And I think that's really interesting because I think there's still a tendency to look for a single moment when the Reformation happened, to look for a moment of conversion that Luther had. And I think that's misplaced. I think that Luther is someone for whom the relationship with God isn't something that happens in a moment, it's not that in a second you suddenly realize that you're saved. That's not how he thinks. He thinks of the relationship with God as something that goes through your life that involves a lot of struggle, and that's an ongoing, lifelong thing in which the believer constantly has what he calls anfechtungen, or moments of doubt, and that that's part of what the Christian life is. 
So the modern Luther story is heir to the Lutheran parsonage. There was no Lutheran parsonage when Luther did his Reformation. That happened afterwards when priests started to get married. It's heir to that and to evangelical ideas of conversion. It, provide, it, it required a dramatic hammer-wielding hero uh, and um, it improved on the original story. So we have Luther the paterfamilias strumming his guitar, sitting with his children by the fireside and inventing Christmas. So by the early 20th century, Luther's act of revolution isn't so much the appearance of Worms as the posting up of the 95 Theses. And now we get all the depictions of the hammering up of the 95 Theses. Although as someone pointed out, if you hammer up in early modern Wittenberg a piece of paper and you use nails, what's going to happen? It's going to blow off <laughs> or get ripped off. So it's much more likely that it was glued up. But that doesn't make anything like as good a picture. And here we have one from 1917, and you can see that this is a deeply militarist depiction. Here we have one, I just love this one, this is from 1921, and it's by Lovis Corinth, a really major artist who did a whole series of depictions of Luther's life. And you can see this is the, the post-First World War moment, a period in which people are much more full of self-doubt, it's a period of defeat, heroism of any kind is put into question, and it's a much more complicated uh, and ambivalent engagement with Luther's legacy. This year, the Luther celebration has reached its uh, apotheosis with the publication of the revised Luther Bible, which is the culmination of decades of scholarship. Has anybody seen that Bible? Yes. Great. It's an amazing, um, uh, it's a really significant scholarly achievement. One of its features that has made Catholics look a bit askance at it is that 60 pages of it are devoted to the story of Luther's life, just in this Jubilee edition. But it struck some people as odd to have Luther's life part of the Bible itself. And it's a much more confessionally marked Bible than the edition without those 60 pages um, is. And the first thing that you see when you arrive in Wittenberg today, has anyone been to Wittenberg this year? One. Oh, <laughs> it is worth a visit. It's just extraordinary. The first thing you see is this, which is, I don't know how tall it is, but it's absolutely monumental. And you can climb to the very top and you get a view of Wittenberg. And the locals think it's wonderful because you can see a whole lot of things that you never could see before because no one had ever been up that high from that position. So if sola scriptura is the principle, it is very much emphatically um, Luther's version of scriptura that we're seeing um, here. So the 500-year celebration of Luther's life certainly pose a dilemma to professional historians and theologians alike. Because that personality of Luther 
just looms over everything. And it can feel as if people think that the Reformation happened because Luther did it all on his own, and as if there was only one theology that came out of the Reformation. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Luther could not have brought about the Reformation on his own. He needed a whole team of supporters and helpers. In the Wittenberg Theology Faculty, there were a whole lot of other people who were hugely important for the Reformation. And um, it certainly was not done by just him, and it gave rise to different theological interpretations. And someone like Andreas Karlstadt is a man whose theology leads straight into the Reformed tradition uh, and eventually into Calvinism. And Anabaptists, too, came out very close to Luther's immediate circle. So, as a historian, too, I certainly wouldn't want to think of one man as bringing about everything, and yet I wrote a biography, and so I'm often stuck in a position in which I look as if I'm overemphasizing the Reformation as Luther's work um, alone. And for theologians, too, I think it's also very tricky because they also don't want to endorse a hero cult of Luther. Because after all, you can see the looming danger. It looks like the man who attacked the cult of the saints ended up being something of a saint himself. So what Lutherans, um, uh, how, they, how they deal with that is to see their man as a prophet. But I think you can see, certainly with something like that little box I showed you earlier, what a fine line sometimes people find they have to tread. So why was I interested in writing a book on Luther? I wasn't someone who'd come out of Reformation history, really. I'd worked on witchcraft before, not the usual qualification for writing a book on Luther. I was fascinated by Luther because when I worked on the interrogations of witches, what I was interested in is what would that tell you about what people were like in the early modern period? What were German women of the 16th, 17th century like? What moved them? What kind of people were they? I know it's a naive question, but that was what really interested me. So I couldn't resist Luther because I had so many more words. With the women who were accused of witchcraft, I only ever had little bits of things that they said, and the questions were put to them by interrogators who wanted a particular outcome. With this, I had not only all those words, but I had pictures. For the first time, I knew what the person I was working on looked like, and that's because around the corner from where Luther lived in Wittenberg, there happened to live the famous artist Lucas Carnach. And the partnership between Luther and the artist Carnach is essential for understanding the Reformation. We might think of the Reformation as being hostile to images. Is that what people would generally assume? It's absolutely the reverse in Lutheranism. Lutheranism makes enormous use of images, was absolutely not opposed to the use of images, and did so from the word go. 
it used images as propaganda and also used portraits of Luther that were sent to key individuals and used in a host of places, including churches. Most churches have a picture of Luther. So here he is as a young monk. Here he is when he's in the Wartburg in hiding and he disguises himself as a nobleman. Here he is when he's become the mature reformer. There are wonderful ones of, of him like that. And here we have the bulky Luther. So one of the things that fascinated me was how could I get to understand his psychology? Another was... This is someone who writes a lot about the body and who uses physical um, metaphors a huge amount and often really quite disgusting ones. So for me, I was interested in how did he understand the relationship between mind and body or soul and flesh, if you like. And you can see what a fully embodied person he is. Does he look like a saint in these pictures? Absolutely not. And that's one of the um, challenges that they faced. This was a man who just didn't look holy. So how are you going to present him? So the most difficult problem I had as a historian was I was interested in ideas drawn from psychology, from psychoanalysis. And I wanted to use them in understanding Luther but I didn't want to oversimplify him. But I couldn't deny that father figures were important, so I had to work about that. Um, I had to think about his relationship with his father, and I also wanted to understand his theology differently as a result of thinking about his psychology. And I guess the thing that, thinking about things this way really changed for me was understanding what I think is the doctrine to which he devoted most of his life defending. And you'll be surprised when I tell you what that was. It was the real presence of Christ in the elements of bread and wine in the Eucharist. How many people would have expected that? I think we all think that Protestants deny that Christ is present in the Eucharist physically. But that's not what Luther thought. What he argued was not that in the Eucharist a miracle happens and what was bread becomes the body of Christ. He says it is at one and the same time bread and it's the body of Christ. And those two things were really important to him. And the other thing that was, of course, absolutely key was that the sacrament consists of two elements, the bread and the wine, and lay people have to have the wine. So I understood that differently once I realized how important physicality was for Luther. Because if you have a positive attitude towards the flesh generally and towards things like bread, then you don't see a contradiction between it being bread and it being Christ. And so for me, um, that made me see his theology differently once I understood him um, as a person. 
So now I want to just talk in the time that remains about what it's been like, this massive uh, national event. One of the things that struck me is how differently um, reactions are between uh, Germany in Catholic and Lutheran areas. In Lutheran towns, the response is really warm. People know a huge amount about Luther. They're also willing to be very critical of him, to my surprise. There's a real engagement with the anti-Semitism that you find in Luther, a willingness to face it head-on, and quite a lot of anger about it. In Catholic areas, I find a lot of intellectual interest, but less of the emotional uh, engagement. But in Britain, exactly the opposite is the case. It's Catholic audiences in, in England who I find are really engaged with the question because for them, theology is still a live issue and they don't make the equation between Englishness and Anglicanism that uh, I think is one of the reasons why Anglicans find it, from my point of view, hard to recognize Luther as part of their heritage. What I've found less of, and wish there were more of, in Germany is an engagement with Islam. And here, Luther's actually a really helpful figure because although he was opposed to Islam, and you can find many awful things that he says about the Turks and so forth and so on, at the same time, he insisted that the Quran should be translated and should be published. And he stepped in in the 1540s when the Basel Town Council was about to ban it. He said, no, the Quran must be published. I think the most extraordinary phenomenon of the Luther year, for me anyway, has been the development of Luther Kitsch. And I've brought along <laughs> some just to show you. And if you can pass these round, that would be great. Here we have the Luther cookie cutter. There's just one problem with this. Friends of mine who've made it say that once you make it, it looks alarmingly like Trump. <laughs> the Luther socks, can you guess what they say? Here I stand. <laughs> The Luther duck, um, I don't know why with the Luther duck either. Here we have Luther noodles. The Luther flip comic. This is one of the strangest ones. This comes from Tübingen. This is the Luther chocolate CD. <laughs> no, I have no explanation. The Luther beer bottle opener. And most famous of all, the Luther Playmobil figure. This picks up on um, very old uh, versions of Luther Kitsch, right from the word go. This is a 17th century tin thing of Luther. Here we have the Luther Bierstein, uh, Luther bookbindings. These are fragments of Luther's uh, cassock, Luther's death mask, sketches of Luther, another Bierstein, and most famous of all on the Wittenberg marketplace, this 19th century heroic statue of Luther, and there's one of Melanchthon as well. And when that statue was taken away for cleaning, 
there was an art installation by the artist Otto Hurl who made hundreds of these in all different colours and put them in lines all over Wittenberg. That was a wonderful, um, beautiful art installation, deeply ironic. But in 2017, it got taken up again and used in a rather different way, a non-ironic way. I found many versions of this Luther statue, and I have to confess at this point that I have one myself. You can buy them for 500 euros. There it is. They're used as signs for Luther exhibitions, and even the Pope has one. <laughs> and if I can just show you the Luther duck, if you haven't had him yet, and most importantly, the Luther Playmobil figure, and there is a story about that um, uh, if we have time to discuss it. Um, so, this kitsch is really interesting. Um, what strikes you about it? Do you notice any patterns in it? One of the elements in the Luther celebration has been very much the celebration of Luther and his relationship to the German language and his role as the um, one of, as, as, as the person, not the first person to translate the Bible into German, but the man whose translation has become hugely influential on the German language. But um, the kitsch itself, I think, is interesting in its own right because of the kinds of things it does. Do, do you notice any patterns? Yeah, at the back. It's domestic. It's not monumental. Yes, it's for individuals to engage with. Anything else that you notice? I think a lot of it involves you in doing something. You have to eat the noodles, you have to bake the biscuits, you have to open the beer, um, and above all, you have to play with it. And I think that's one of the really interesting features of this. I think it's deliberately non-monumental, I think it is deliberately personal. Um, and I think that the humour of it is the other feature that really strikes me. It's funny. It's something that makes you laugh and that is against pomposity. And I think that's a, a wonderful feature of it. So it's about putting yourself into a position in which you engage with Luther's story. But I think it's also especially at the moment, a way of thinking about what Germanness means now. And I think that that is something that this kitsch is also raising, and that's something that I hope that we can talk about more in discussion. But that's where I'd like to stop. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for that extremely illuminating talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, what I'd like to know is, could you just uh, expand a little bit on, you were saying that English Catholics are engaging with the theology of Luther because it's a live issue. Is that what I heard you say for them still or something that's not fully resolved? Or, or, or maybe I, I'm mis, misquoting you, but... Could you go back to that? It would be interesting. I think one of the things that's been absolutely fascinating about this year is the engagement of Catholics with Lutheran theology. 
and the um, sense that many of the things that Luther said are actually not so far from Catholic um, understanding today. And what I've been struck by is um, recently I gave a lecture in a Lutheran church in London and the drinks afterwards, the reception, was hosted in a Catholic church. Uh, and the Catholic Church Hall just around the corner. And time and again, I've seen this, and it's been great. Catholics and Lutherans working together. And I think it's because some of the issues that Luther raises, like celibacy, like what the sacrament means, um, are things that people are very actively engaged with, especially at the moment. And I think that people see Luther as an interlocutor, and they're not stuck in this nationalist thing of thinking, oh, he's German, therefore he's not relevant uh, to me and my church. Good morning. Thank you so much. A marvellous morning. Just two little points. Uh, the first one, there was a film in black and white and English with an Irish actor playing Luther, Niall McGuinness. This film dates from about the 1950s. Now, the other thing which I find fascinating is that a monk in Glenstall was inspired by your book. And he has produced a book which deals with Luther's challenge then and Luther's challenge today. Uh, and the book is called simply Martin Luther, His Challenge Then and Now. And this book, I believe, is to be released uh, later this month. It's by Father Paddy Finton Lyons of Glenstall. And Dinstall was famous for its Glenstall ecumenical conferences. Alas, no more with us. They did a marvellous job over 50 years. Thank you so much for this marvellous morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. I agree with all that. What struck me was when you were talking about people seeking the moment of revelation when Ruth's mind changed, is that because people see a parallel, which seems to me to be fairly obvious, between Luther and St. Paul. And it also struck me that the personalities and characters of both Luther and Paul, and you can get quite a good sense of Paul's personality from reading the epistles and from reading the Acts, that they're very similar in many ways. And the big difference is that Luther embraced the flesh and Paul rejected it. And I'd very much like to be very grateful to you if you'd comment on that and let me know what you think. Thank you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I think Luther does uh, model himself to a degree on Paul. Um, Paul is hugely important for his theological understandings and he reads and meditates on Paul again and again and again. And I think that's why he comes up with that story about a moment of conversion. I'm sure you're right about that. And that's also why I think it's um, many, many of these stories are important not because they're literally true, but because they convey something that the person wants to convey about themselves. And I think that's the case with Luther. What he wants to convey is his own sense of having um, com gone through a complete experience of transformation like Paul um, and he wants to emphasize the difference between the old him and the, the new man 
And so he goes for a single incident. And yet he himself knows that it wasn't a single incident. Why else would he date it so late? He knows that it is a process. And it's not a, really a description of how his religious, um, what his religious sensibility was like. It wasn't a single moment thing. It was an ongoing relationship. An evolving relationship, absolutely. And the intellectual changes he goes through between um, 1517, when he puts up the 95 Theses, and 1520, um, at the end of which he's written those three great Reformation treatises, it's remarkable. It's just extraordinary, the intellectual creativity in those few years. By a strange coincidence, I read your book a couple of months ago, and about the same time, I also read The Pope's Daughter, which... Oh, yes. Which yes, which I also but, have read, yes. Well, so one of the things book. that I was interested in your book, uh, and I'd like you to clarify this, I got the impression that Luther considered he was having a personal battle with the devil uh, for much of his life, you know, and he also considered... Pope, Pope Julius II, I think it was, to be the devil incarnate. And, and that dominated much of his life. And that caused um, strains, psychological or emotional strains in his life, th th this war with the devil. And I also got the impression from um, these emotional extremes that perhaps <coughs> in today's modern world, could he have been considered bipolar or am I... Uh, it's very, very interesting that you say that Would because there is a, um, a an early 20th century biography of Luther by a medical doctor who argues that he was bipolar. But um, I wouldn't see him as, as bipolar. Um, I, I don't think also that medical labels like that are terribly helpful in, in his case. Uh, and the book that argues that is a very, very strange book which came out in strange circumstances. But you're absolutely right. Luther's relationship with the devil is key to understanding him and his theology. And what's so fascinating about it is that mostly, um, well, having encounters with the devil is something that Christian saints very often experience. But what they also experience are beatific visions. Luther is not a visionary. He doesn't have um, uh, moments of, of, a, of a vision of Christ or a vision of Mary or of a saint. He is someone who takes the encounters that he has with the devil very seriously and those Anfechtungen or temptations or tribulations, as he calls them, are key to understanding his theology. And what he does is to say that the fact that the devil is attacking him is God's way of showing that he is on Christ's side. Because if the devil wasn't attacking him, if it, then it wouldn't be worth the devil's while to do so. So he interprets um, his headaches his, uh, uh, many of his physical problems as being the assaults of the devil. And I think what he means by that is that these attacks of the devil 
don't show that you're suffering from depression and that you've been left by God and deserted by God. They show that you are engaged in a battle against the devil, which is a really important one and which is because you are on Christ's side. He didn't um, think that the actual pope was the devil. He thought that the institution of the papacy was of the devil, and he has a, a dreadful line in anti-papal propaganda, and that's also one of the reasons why it has been so hard for Protestants and Catholics to come together. I think we'll just take one last uh, question. Time is moving on. There's uh, somebody over there with the microphone. Go ahead, sir. Um, yes, so, hello. I've been uh, meaning to ask, so from what I understand, there have been earlier sort of proto-reformist movements in uh, Western Europe, particularly in Germany and England, like the Lollards and the Hussites and even Savonarola in Florence. Uh, I was wondering if uh, there had been any sort of, uh, if these sorts of movements had any sort of influence on Luther of any sort, because I also understood that I've been told that uh, Luther had been charged as a Hussite by, by members of the Catholic Church and had uh, even expressed admiration for Savonarola. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, there is a wonderful moment after the Leipzig debate when Luther realises that he's putting exactly the positions of Huss. He's forced into a corner and then he realises that he is saying what Huss said and that he's siding with someone who's been condemned as a heretic. And that's part of the way in which his thought evolves. And one of the very interesting things that early Lutheran, the early Lutheran church does is to look back into its own heritage and to recuperate people like Savonarola, people like Hus, as part of the tradition out of which they come. So that's very, very much what it's all about. There's one final thing that I would like to say, which is that one of the things that's been so wonderful for me about the experience of speaking in Germany and speaking to different kinds of audiences is the open-mindedness that I've met with. It's not easy in Germany to come uh, to hear an outsider, a non-Lutheran, a non-German and a woman talking about Luther. And I'd like to pay tribute to the fantastic openness that I've met with in Germany. And everywhere I've gone, I've found Catholics wanting to engage and discuss and Protestants also wanting to engage and discuss. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Fest.